Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. I'm just going to refer to it as Day of Atonement rather than Yom Kippur uh, for a couple reasons. One, all our different Bible translations take this Yom and translate it as Day of, and Kippur, they translate it as Atonement. And so just for consistency, when we're reading through, I'm just going to refer to it as Day of Atonement. And then the other reason is um, because some people still celebrate Yom Kippur today, and it's the way they celebrate is very different than what we're going to learn about now. It's changed quite a bit. And so just to make a distinction between what you see on the news compared to what the ancient Israelites actually did, um, we're going to use the term Day of Atonement. So as we read through and study Leviticus 16, we will understand why to a people living before the coming of Jesus, they found the Day of Atonement to be most holy and important of all their days. So we're going to read through Leviticus 16, and then we'll break it down. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarments on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And should take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times. 
and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote place, and he shall let the goat free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put his garments and come out and offer burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his, face, wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was carried in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourself. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as a priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for all the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. All right, so to fully understand this and how and why Aaron's two sons died, we need to go back to Leviticus 10 for the full story. When we read here about the Day of Atonement, it assumes that you already know the preceding events. So we're going to go through that real quick here. This is Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered it offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So here's a picture of what a Frenchman in the 1600s thought it would have looked like. Not really accurate, though. There's a dog, and uh, Israelites didn't like dogs, and they wouldn't have kept dogs around, and they would have been in the tent. But anyways... What will help here is looking at where there are. This is where the altar of incense was that they would have been at to try and get into the Holy of Holies. So now Leviticus 10, 8 through 11. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So if, if you're like me, you probably grew up hearing it, that passage saying strange fire um, rather than unauthorized. Uh, the root word in Hebrew is czar, which can mean strange or different or illicit. And then other uh, Hebrew roots built off that root that are in the Bible have meant illegitimate or non-Israelite or prohibited. So while strange is a correct translation, 
I actually prefer how the ESV and CSV uses unauthorized uh, because in English, strange makes you think of like weirdness or some sort of like perversion and things like that. Um, or just like, you know, you see someone, you're like, oh, that was strange, right? And so I think unauthorized is, uh, is, is better because then we don't bring our baggage into it. It wasn't that they were bringing, you know, uh, like incense that then lit up a different color or something like that, right? It was that it was, it was not asked of them by God. Um, and another reason why I prefer it being uh, used as unauthorized is they use that same word in Exodus 30 uh, when God is telling them how to design and build, build the altar of incense. Oops, I thought I was on the, there you go, right here. So this is how God's describing what you should do with that. Exodus 30, 7 through 10. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin of the offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So instead of using the prescribed vessels, we're told in Leviticus that Nadab and Abihu, they used their own censers rather than the temple ones. And in addition, they were not the ones called to burn the incense at that time. They wanted to do things their own way and not God's way. They violated the command and they were killed for it. It seems harsh, struck dead for burning some incense. Um, But it's not so much the act as it was the intent. The incense is right up against the veil of the Holy of Holies. Sorry, I lost my spot showing you that. Um, All right, there we go. They were struck down because through their own process, they were violating the holiness of God. It doesn't matter that their dad was the high priest. It doesn't matter who your parents are. If you are violating God, you're violating God. God is most holy and his ways must be adhered to. Now, some people speculate that they were killed because they were under the influence of alcohol when they offered their sacrifice. So this is, this is their argument. They were killed, and then after that, God tells Aaron not to drink any alcohol before going into the tent of meeting and going on duty. So they must have had something to drink before going in there. Otherwise, why would they be told not to? And let's see, we already read that passage there. Um, and so it's plausible that maybe they have drank something, but also it could have been that they didn't drink anything at all. Um, God, it specifies, God strikes them for their invalid sacrifice. It doesn't say anything about because they had drank. And when God talks to Aaron here in Leviticus, it's the first and only time in Leviticus that he's getting direct word from God. All the other times it's being instructed through Moses. And he tells him that what is, that he needs to be demonstrating what the difference is between holy and not clean and unclean. This is a personal charge that God is giving him and a reminder of the importance and responsibility of being the high priest. He's being told that he must be of sober mind when carrying out his duties. So I don't know about you. My job has a clause that doesn't matter how much alcohol you can't show up to work, right? A lot of people's jobs do that. It's, it's uh, a distinction to show people that I am thinking clearly. You can't assign any blame to me. And I think that's what's happening here with God when he's reminding Aaron. He's saying, hey, you, you've got an important job. And yes, everyone else is having some wine, but you can't. You are set apart from them. It's kind of like a Nazarite vow, but not quite. It's sort of like a temporary. It's not that Aaron can never. It's just if you're going to be at work, you're not. So 
you'll, you'll, if you read through books, a lot of people will claim that, that's, that they got drunk and tried to enter the Holy of Holies, and that's why they were killed. And I don't think that's the case, and I don't think we should think that because the important part is that they were violating God's holiness, not that they entered that room. And we violate God's holiness all the time too. It's just through mercy that we're not being struck dead the moment we do it. Um, So to be in God's presence, oh, sorry. Um, So this whole incident with Nadab and Abihu, it showed Aaron and the rest of Israel how serious this holiness is. The whole camp knew what happened, and they realized that, you know, this is really important, and we need to pay attention to what God is telling us. To be in God's presence, Aaron needs to atone for his sins before he can enter. And all this would have been clear uh, as then God told them about what to do in Leviticus 16. So now that we are aware of the seriousness of God's holiness, let's break down the various elements of the Day of Atonement feast and see how Jesus in his sacrifice is the ultimate expression and means of our salvation and forgiveness of sins. So before Aaron can even give his sin offering, he needs to clean and purify himself. He bathes himself, and he puts on the holy garments. Leviticus 16 briefly describes the garments. Uh, if you want a more in-depth description, you can go to Exodus 28. Um, one thing to note is the high priest is not wearing the full garments for the Day of Atonement. So forget the image in your head that you got here of the priest in blue with the breastplate, and the gold on the forehead. He's only in white for the Day of Atonement. The rest of the priestly garb is not used. So this, the white of the robe is to represent purity. If there's any imperfection or stain on his clothes, you would be able to see it. You can't hide the spot behind a breastplate or an apron or a robe. Sure, a lot of you have done this. You got a spot on your shirt, and it's like, well, I'm wearing a sport coat anyway, and you just make sure that that's covering it up. You you can't do that if you're wearing all white, right? So he's it's a visual representation to the people of Israel that he has washed and he has cleaned and he's ritually purified himself. Um, and in the Bible, we also see this imagery of of white robes and and purity in Revelation. We can only appear before God if we've been purified of sin, and wearing the white robe symbolizes that, both for the high priest here in Day of Atonement and for believers in the future. Here's uh, Revelation 7, 9 through 17. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, uh, the me here is uh, John, we are those, these, clothed in white robes, and from where they have come. And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Sorry about that. So the high priest being in the all-white during this ceremony is a, is a precursor of what will then happen in the end times. 
So after donning his holy garments, the high priest would then bring two goats to the entrance of the tent of meeting. So we've got the tent, and then around it, you've got the different tribes. And this is all in Exodus telling, you know, who's where. But this would be the entrance to the tent of meeting. And so when the, uh, what would happen is you've had these thousands of people all turned in looking at the tabernacle. Because as, as we read earlier, Aaron's the only one in there. And so everyone is watching. But when he gets these goats here, it's out in the open where everyone can see. So as outlined in Leviticus 4, these goats would have been male and spotless, spotless without blemish. Lots were cast to determine which goat is sacrificed and which one sent away. And despite lots being cast or being referenced 70 times in the Old Testament, the Bible never specifies how the Israelites would cast lots. So maybe it was sticks of varying lengths, like how we draw straws. Maybe they flipped a coin like the ancient Romans did. Or maybe they did what the Jews did during the Second Temple period, where they would draw names out of a box. So in the Second Temple period, we have records uh, depicting the process where um, we have a box, and one name would say the Lord on it, the other one would say Azazel, and they would reach in and pull it out. And that would be how they determine it. That could be how the ancient Israelites did um, we don't know, and part of why we don't know is by the second simple period, they'd changed so many things from what we're reading in Leviticus 16 that it's really hard to tell what they're doing was original that's not mentioned or if that was just a change they made on their own. But anyways, it doesn't really matter how they cast the lots. The point is that the goat chosen for sacrifice was not selected by the high priest the lot that fell to the Lord would be sacrificed and the other goat would be for Azazel. If you're like me, you're thinking back, well, what is Azazel? I thought the Day of Atonement involved a scapegoat. Well, they are the same thing. The Hebrew word used in, the, in Leviticus there is Azazel, and no one knows exactly what it means. Nearly all scholars, though, both the ancient uh, scholars and historians and modern ones, they all agree that it's a place. The disagreement is on how that place name came to be. So some say that, well, it's a compound word derived from to be strong and mighty, and that's going to refer to the steep mountains in the wilderness. Others think, well, no, it's pretty similar to the word goat and to go. And they're sending this goat out, so goat and to go, that's probably where it came from. So with that theory, they're saying the wilderness is being referred to as the place where the goat goes. However, unfortunately, during the Hellenistic period of Jewish history, we talked about that a few weeks ago, pagan ideas started to creep in, and you had people starting to believe that Azazel is a demon rather than a place. And they'll claim that the place was named after a demon. But we can flatly reject this idea uh, repeatedly through all the Old Testament and the New, we are told not to sacrifice to idols or false gods. We're also told not to consult with mediums and spirits. And additionally, nowhere in the Bible are demons appeased. When demons are mentioned, they're cast out. They're not placated. So why would, on the holiest day for Israel, God instruct them to sacrifice to a demon? He wouldn't do that. It's not in his character, and it's not consistent with the rest of the Bible. It, the whole idea is it's pure paganism that corrupted the thoughts of some Jews and also of Christians who mistakenly believe that the Book of Enoch is true. Um, and Book of Enoch and this whole belief that Azazel was a demon came hundreds of years after what's happening here in Exodus, I mean in Leviticus. So it's pretty safe to say that that's corruption that has entered in. But wanted you to be aware because if you're just going to search Azazel, pop culture goes, oh, well, that's a demon, when really it's a place. We just don't know exactly how they came up with that name. Which brings us back to our, our question. So how did we end up saying scapegoat? 
when the word Zazazel? Well, for that, we, we're going to go back to Alexandria. And remember those 70 Jewish scholars? that uh, They translated Azazel as goat going out when they did the Septuagint. Then when Jerome did the Latin Vulgate, he used the term emissary goat. So in the early 1500s, William Tyndale, he followed their suit, and he translated Azazel rather than transliterating it. And he translated it as scapegoat. And uh, so why scape? Well, in his lifetime, people said scape instead of escape. They didn't have the E added on there. I know it sounds goofy, and like that's like a made-up fact, but that's really what it was. They said scape instead of escape. So even in William Shakespeare's time, people were still saying scape instead of escape. So you can go through some of William Shakespeare's work, and you can find the use of the word scape in there. It means the same thing. So it's literally translated as a scapegoat. So once William Tyndale invented that word scapegoat, kind of stuck around until uh, John Nelson Darby made his translation in the late 1800s. That's when you first see in English Bibles it being Azazel. Uh, and in today, modern translations, they're split between transliterating it as Azazel or translating into scapegoat. So I was curious what other languages did in regards to Azazel. And the vast majority of translations I looked at, they said Azazel. Uh, however, there were some exceptions. One French Bible said emissary goat, uh, just like the Latin Vulgate. The 2003 update to the German Schlachter Bible used sin goat, which I thought was curious because the earlier editions of that Bible used Azazel. So in the 2000s, they decided to change it for some reason. Uh, a Dutch Bible also used sin goat. An Italian one used atonement goat. And then everyone's favorite, the Hawaiian Pigeon Bible, it turned it into a phrase as goat go way inside the boonies. <laughs> so they just went with literally what they were going to do with the goat. So while English is not alone in trying to translate the word Azazel, uh, the vast majority of languages and Bibles use Azazel. So even though I grew up with scapegoat, and that's what I'm familiar with, I won't object to people saying Azazel. And I think it's important that we're, we don't be scared of that word because of the later negative things people brought in by making up stories saying that that was a demon. So that was the rabbit trail. We're going to get back on and learn more about uh, how this whole process worked. So that second goat, the lot that was cast for Azazel, it would not be sacrificed on the altar. It shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness. So this animal, it would be set aside for the moment after they'd cast the lots, and then the high priest would prepare to enter the Holy of Holies. So with this, the bull is now killed, and this sacrifice is a sin offering for the high priest and his family for their sins that they've committed. And once the bull is then killed, the priest is going to take a censer of hot coals and incense inside the Holy of Holies. So a side note here, if you're like me and you read the word censer, again, you bring baggage in, you imagine what you see Catholics or Lutherans or the Orthodox using, where it's this device that's cylindrical and there's incense already burning in it, it's on a chain and people are swinging it. That is not what they're meaning by the word censer here. The Hebrew censer, there's no chains or ropes, there's no incense already in it. Um, it's a small shovel that you use to scoop up live coals. It's like the ash uh, shovel that you'd find at a hardware store, uh, only instead of being stamped stainless steel, this one would be out of brass. And we know it was made out of brass because Exodus and Numbers describes the utensils used in the temple, and they describe the censer as being made of brass. However, according to Josephus, the censer used during the second temple period on the Day of Atonement was made of gold. So, don't know when they made that change, but by the time... Um, of around when Jesus was was around and born, 
they would be using a gold censer on the Day of Atonement. So that's why in this picture here, it looks like he's carrying a shovel. This is not a censer. This is just a vessel holding incense. This is the actual censer. And that's the problem with English, right? Many words can, many things can be uh, described using the same word. So uh, after he had the coals, he would set it down on the floor. He'd go into the Holy Holes and set it in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Or if it was the second temple period, put it on the raised portion of the floor that represented where the Ark would have gone. And then the crushed incense would be dropped onto the hot coals to burn and create smoke. The cloud of incense is used to obscure the view of God. So remember Moses at Mount, Mount Sinai. God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So that's what the incense is for, is create this cloud to obscure the view so it's not him looking directly at God. Uh, it has nothing to do with the fragrance. It's actually just to make smoke. Um, so then the priest takes the bull's blood and he sprinkles it on the ark and in front of it. That's for my next chunk, sorry. Uh, on the ark and in front of it. And then he leaves. Um, now that he's atoned for his sins and his family's sins, so now he's going to sacrifice on behalf of Israel. The goat is killed, and his blood is brought into the Holy Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat in front of it, just like the bull's blood. However, instead of being for him and his family, uh, this blood is atoning for all of Israel. Then he takes both the bull and the goat blood, mixed together, and puts it on the altar of incense. So that's right in front of the tent, I mean the uh, the veil, the curtain. That's the altar of incense. So this is the one that would be used for daily sacrifice. So now he has both the bull and the goat blood is going to be put upon that. And after he's done that, the priest then leaves the tent, goes out, and... Um, He's going to put his hands, he shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. So that's that's just a helper, an assistant, someone who's going to escort this goat through the camp. Because as we we looked earlier, There's thousands of people around the tent, so you can't just let the goat go there. It's definitely going to find people and want to hang out. So someone escorts it way away from the camp into the wilderness. And this goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. So after the goat has been led away from the camp, the priest then returns to the tent of meeting. So he's now back inside here. He takes off his garments, and then he bathes. Then he redresses into a different set of clothes, leaves the tent, and then gives the burnt offering. So that's where you, we heard earlier about the, uh, the ram. And then you also have the fat of the goat and the bull. Um, and then after he does the burnt offering, somebody else is going to get the carcass of the bull and the goat that he was using the blood for, for going into the mercy seat. And they're going to take the bull and the goat away from the camp and burn it. And then the one that led the goat uh, out of the camp and the ones that took the bull and and goat carcass and burned it, they will uh, wash their clothes, bathe, and then return to the camp with the rest of the Israelites. And the last section of Leviticus Leviticus 16 explains to the people that this will be a regular event that they will repeat every year. The 10th day of the seventh month, which happens to be today, we've got two minutes left before it officially ends, Yom Kippur ends. So we made it. 
We were able to talk about the whole ceremony while it was actually the Day of Atonement. Um, so after he tells them, this is the day you're going to do it, he then tells what the Israelites' responsibility is. So, so far, what we've been reading, it's all falling on the high priest and a couple helpers. Well, then now there's the charge for the people. And what their responsibility is, is they are going to fast and pray and do no work. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you, and you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. There you go. I forgot to show that. So what are we to make of the Day of Atonement? Besides the historical aspect, what bearing does it have on our life? And how does it apply to Gentiles? The writer of Hebrew fully understands the importance of the Day of Atonement and how we should view it in the reality of Christ. The Day of Atonement was a shadow of the good things to come through Jesus. It was to show us that we are powerless to forgive our sins and fully dependent on God. It was to show that God is most holy and that we need someone to mediate on our behalf. So I'm going to read uh, out of Hebrews here. This is the end of Hebrews 9, and then just a little bit of 10. And so now that we're familiar with the ceremony, reading this passage, the, the wheels will start clicking, and it will make sense what he's talking about here. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant." For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with much better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices, that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. 
for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So by understanding the Day of Atonement, we're able to understand just how significant and important the sacrifice of Jesus was. Instead of continual death year after year to atone for our sins, Christ died once to cleanse us. So I'd like to conclude uh, this sermon here with another passage from Hebrews. And this one here, it's a charge uh, to the early Christians, but one that also still applies to us, and I think that we should take to heart. Let us not forget the great sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf to take away our sins. This is Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So thank you guys. Um, if you've got some questions, we can do a little discussion here. I kind of read through Leviticus quick because I, I didn't want to run out of time. I think I read through a little too fast. Oh, um, I don't know the exact spot in Hebrews, but he he does go through that where he's someone he's dealing with the argument someone ma- makes of, well, since our sins are forgiven, I can just keep sinning, and it, yeah. So just saying ten twenty six. So it's in Hebrews. If you read through it all, he he refutes that argument and says, no, we're supposed to to stop sinning. Yes, there was only one sacrifice needed to cleanse you, but that doesn't mean keep doing evil and bad. Um, so, yeah, the people that are, that are quoting that to you, they're not reading the rest of the, of the book because he, he, he'll say that and then go, but you also have to stop sinning. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Oh. Yeah. Well, the, the best thing to do if like someone presents a verse to you and it seems like odd and you're like, oh, well, that doesn't really seem like what we should be doing or this or that, uh, read it before and after it to see what the context is. Because if you just pull something out, it could be in the middle of something explaining how bad this one person was, <laughs> you know? Like, here are the bad things they did. And then the person who's quoting it saying, oh, see, the Bible endorses polygamy. It's like, well, you're leaving out this whole part at the end that's saying, here's all the terrible things that happened because he took more than one wife. So just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that it's being endorsed. There's examples of what not to do in there. It's like uh, safety videos. They'll tell you about something someone did they're not saying, hey, go stick your foot in front of the forklift if it's, uh, if it's you know, going off. No, they, they say, hey, this one person stuck his foot out and it got pinched between these things and he lost a toe, right? So just because something's in there doesn't mean it's saying you need to do this. Sometimes it's a, someone did something foolish, learn from their mistake, don't repeat it. So that's, that's the problem with people just pulling one verse out is it could be in the middle of a passage describing things like that. So that would be my advice is read the, read the beginning and the, the end before it to see exactly what, what it's wanting to do. Any others?
Yeah, that, that goat had all the sins of Israel put on it, and Israel drove it away from the camp, and it's to symbolize that their sin has left them. Um, yeah, but like I was saying, it's the second temple period, they got weird with it, and they added all sorts of crazy stuff, and we, we know that they've done these things because Josephus wrote some of it down, and then also in the Mishnah and other uh, Jewish works, they would write down what, what their process was. And uh, by second temple period, they actually, instead of just leading it into the wilderness and letting it go off, they'd throw it off a cliff, which is crazy to me. But that's what they, they ended up doing. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell them, you're supposed to kill this goat. You're supposed to throw it off a cliff. It repeatedly says, this is the live goat. Your sins are put upon it. It's cast out of you. It's symbolizing the sin has gone away. But they ended up, for some reason thinking that that goat had to die, so they would bring it to a cliff and they'd throw it off. So that's part of why I'm not calling it Yom Kippur. I'm calling it Day of Atonement because what was, became Yom Kippur had that. And then also, like, the priest, like, it describes how he changed clothes. They would have the priest change clothes more times than that. They would have him prepare a week in advance for this, and so he would actually be living there in the temple for a week beforehand because they had all these extra things they'd built in of what well, what actually will purify him. So it was a big old process and ordeal, whereas this is just saying, wash yourself, put on the white linens, then do these things, morphed into, you need to spend a week in here doing these particular rituals. And so that's why in the New Testament you hear Jesus saying, you're following the traditions of men, not the not the word of God, because God gave them all the instructions, and they went, well, that's good. Why don't we add 20 more pages of things to do? And, um, yeah, so I've, I've found myself studying more of, like, the, the uh, ancient Israel and, and Jewish things, the, the stuff that got added. It starts making the New Testament make more sense of, oh, well, that's why he's so upset. They really have deviated from the intent. You know, you have people throwing goats off cliffs now. That would be um, after they returned from Babylon and built the temple again. And so um, it'd be that all the way up until 70 uh, AD when the Romans destroyed it. Um, and so with that, that, that period there was all during when the Greeks were in charge and uh, other people. It, it ebbed and flowed who was in charge, but... That's the second temple period. So the first temple is what Solomon built, and then that was destroyed when Babylon came. And then when they were sent back and they rebuilt the temple, that's now the start of the second temple period. So a lot of times, like when I was saying this is what they did in the second temple period, that's more of like the end of the second temple period. That's when they started writing down a lot of of stuff. Oh, you mean like how do they still do Yom Kippur today? Yeah, because they don't, they don't sacrifice because there's not a temple. So they don't do a sacrifice. So what they do for Yom Kippur today is they basically, they still fast and pray, but it's kind of like sit around and think about what you've done type of thing. Like, you know, like that's, that's what they do. Like they think about all the bad stuff they did for the year and then hope that they are forgiven for it. So it's kind of sad, the, the modern... Uh, celebration of it because it's a lot of like, well, I hope I'm forgiven for all the bad things and um, they'll do things like, well, maybe I should apologize to this person and they'll, they'll do stuff like that. Um, but it, it's, it's a big deal over in Israel. They, they don't have any uh, cars drive. There's no flights, no trains go. Um, you know, and, and Israel has a lot of people who are just straight up atheists and they adhere to the, we're not going to do anything on that day. Um, and so it's a lot of thinking about how bad you've been for the year and hope that you can be forgiven and praying and fasting. So that's how they still do it today, um, since there's no temple to sacrifice in.
um, it happens right before the New Testament. Yeah, so um, they start building the temple uh, about 400 and something years before the New Testament starts. That, that's, that's after. Constantine's 300 A.D. So, yeah, so he's, he's way later. Yeah. Um, Alexander the Great came in through Israel, and he's the one that started the Hellenization. Yeah. But the, yeah, so the Old Testament ends, and then you've got about 480-ish years, and then the New Testament starts. And so the, simple, the second temple period is, starts during that and then leads up uh, after the Bible, because the Bible uh, ends before the temple is destroyed. Yeah. The prophecy about the temple being destroyed, but uh, the, re- the Acts doesn't go that far in, in history. Well, thank you, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. I know that Leviticus can be dry at times, so I uh, appreciate that you guys stuck through it. And um, I, I found it interesting just how well the writer of Hebrews was able to see those connections between what they were doing, because it almost, in our modern eyes, seems ar- arbitrary what they're doing, but showing that, like, no, this is, it's it's just a, a shadow, a glimmer of what is the pure holiness, and so it it's a, it gave me a better appreciation of what Jesus has done. Well, thank you guys. I feel like we need to end with a prayer, though. My wife's saying yes, we do. All right, Lord, we thank you that we're able to gather this evening and to read your word and. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to continually sacrifice animals to purify our sins and that we don't have to go through a earthly mediator, but that we can go directly to God through you and that you willingly and freely sacrificed yourself for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.